Previously on the Enneagram Journey. In the criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separate yet equally important groups. The police who investigate crime and the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders. These are their stories. So, do you recognize any of these men? I was hiding in the bathroom stall, so I didn't see his face, but I heard him. He was singing along to the music at the bar. Do you remember what he was singing? I think it was that song, I Want It That Way. Backstreet Boys, I'm familiar. Okay. Number one, could you please sing the opening to I Want It That Way? Really? Okay. You are my fire. Number two, keep it going. The one desire. Number three, believe when I say. Number four, I want it that way. Tell me why. Ain't nothing but a heartache. Tell me why. Ain't nothing but a mistake. Now number five, I never want to hear you say. I want it that way. Oh, chills. Literal chills. It was number five. Number five killed my brother. Oh my God, I forgot about that part. I think sixes are used to, we're so much in our heads and we're not moving as fast as everyone else. And so I think we're used to being the ones to say what other people haven't thought of. And sometimes it's rewarded and a lot of times it's, misunderstood and sometimes it's invalidated and a lot of times people just are moving faster and move on and I think it has to do with (laughs) that worst case scenario thinking welcome everybody to a brand new episode of the Enneagram Journey podcast with your Enneagram godmother Suzanne Stabile my name is Joel and you're also going to hear Lindsay O'Connor in today's episode if you're listening in the car those hands better be at 10 and 2, because Anygram 6 Police Chief Mike Alexander is our guest today. Mike is married to his wife, Anygram 1 Cheryl, who is a marriage and family therapist. They have five grown kids, and he has been policing for over 40 years. When the episode is over, you're probably going to say to yourself, I would love to find out more about what Mike is up to. He's incredible. And you can do that. Go online at lionstrategy.group. For the record, I hope you hear more of him here on the podcast and around LTM. You won't hear him at LTM, though, August 4th through 6th, because that is all Suzanne. From intentional to intuitive, three days of Enneagram teaching, combining all the things you've learned from the road back to you, the path between us, journey toward wholeness, and probably just your own life experiences in working with Enneagram wisdom. Suzanne is going to help us connect the dots in the roles shame, fear, and anger play in our lives, how we address those with the three centers of intelligence, the four mantras, and how we can spend more time in the high side of our number and the high side of our security number. That's going to be August 4th through 6th. You can join us in Dallas or online from anywhere on this beautiful planet. Visit SuzanneStabile.com or LifeInTheTrinityMinistry.com for more information and to sign up. Since we need to do something, though, to fill the time between now and August 4th, let's go ahead and enjoy today's episode. All right, here we go. We're starting over. Um, Mike, it's my first chance to meet you, and I'm so excited about it and about talking about the Enneagram with you, and what you do is very intriguing to me. So for 
my audience who may not know you, uh, I'm visiting with Mike Alexander. And Mike, I'd love for you to tell uh, my people and our people some things about you that are germane to how you spend your days. Yeah. Um, again, my, uh, Mike Alexander, I, um, I spend my days as a police chief, um, dealing with the ebbs and flows of life inside the walls and the halls of a, of a police department where, um, there's tremendous amount of, uh, tremendous amount of complexity. It's a truly, truly a, what I call a VUCA world where it's very volatile, uh, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, mm-hmm. Many of which, uh, as a six, especially that ambiguity piece, uh, I struggle with, but that's my world. I was aware when I was thinking about our time together, today I happened to be driving over to a church in uh, Lakewood yesterday, and I thought, I've made up a lot of stuff about what I think happens in a police department. And then I thought, well, where did I get the stuff to make that up? And it's for sure law and order. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. <laughs> so I'm guessing yes. that I'm off a bit. Yeah. Yes, you are. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but, you know, I watch some of that stuff, too, uh, at from time to time. But, yeah, you're off. Yeah. Of all the fun Enneagram throw pillow topics, Enneagram and law and order, is, SVU has never popped up of... <laughs> <laughs> like let's let's guess their enneagram numbers. I've yeah. never even thought about that myself. Yeah. I I think we all we all who don't work in uh, first responder territory, no matter whether or not it's in a firehouse or a police department, I think we do make up what we think happens there. Yeah. And when you described walking the halls and the walls, I thought, you know, I haven't even ever imagined what it would be like to walk by somebody who is experiencing the kind of hope and threat at the same time that happens constantly. Yeah. yeah. Um, You know, I tell my officers all the time that when people dial 911, they're dialing hope and they're looking for hope to come. And sometimes we do show up and sometimes we don't. Sometimes we are in as bad of shape as the people we are actually going to serve. And so I stay in this world for that very reason, uh, to try and work with those that are working with our community. Mm-hmm. Uh, because for me, the way out is in. And so you got to go in and deal with what's inside the halls and mm-hmm. the, the walls of a police department so that they can be healthy enough to hold space for the people that are dialing hope. And when we are not healthy enough to deal with the people who are dialing hope, then we become sometimes their worst enemy. Um, And that's the unfortunate part of my world as well. So I'm just sitting here looking at you and listening to you and thinking, okay, this is the first time I've ever sat next to somebody who is so strong and so vulnerable. At the same time. Yeah, you're picking up on that, huh? Uh, Well, it's astonishing to me that you have to be so strong to do what you do. And every, almost everything you've said Mm 
is your choice to be vulnerable mm-hmm. with the men and women that you're responsible for as their chief. Yeah, yeah. That is, um, that's unusual. I am perhaps one of few on an island because that's not how we typically present ourselves. Right. Um, we present ourselves completely different. Why? Because we've, we've been taught how to remove, not, not intentionally, but when all of us went through a police academy, mm-hmm. uh, four things were somewhat inadvertently removed from us, and that, that was um, empathy and sympathy, compassion, and vulnerability. And those are four things that I think every human soul needs in order to survive, but um, as a police officer, they equate to weakness. And uh, God forbid that we end up in a space where we are weak and people uh, take advantage of us. So we've learned and been taught how to be very stoic in the presence of some of the most egregious uh, situations and events. And our eyes will see things that the average person will never see. We experience things that the average person will never experience. And yet, people expect us to be healthy, uh, both mentally and physically. And that is just not the case at all. So when you see what you see in a police officer, you really don't know what you're seeing. You don't know what you're looking at. Because that very person could be struggling with demons inside that nobody knows about. Uh, but him or her uh, and those that are have trained their brains or minds to be able to see the micro issues that leading to an eventual macro issue, meaning uh, suicide or something uh, of that of that nature. Um, so I live in this world. I do this work not because I want to be a chief. I can care less about that. I really care about the men and women mm-hmm. who have made the decision uh, to put themselves in harm's way 24-7 for people they, know, they don't know. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then they go home to their families, and they are not always in their right minds. And so that trauma that they bring from work, they take home. Sure. It affects the, 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 the family. And there are many of us who are living in the homes with our families and our spouses don't know us, our kids don't know us. And um, we live in the shadows. So I'm sharing things with you that the average person would never know, never experience and don't ever see and won't ever see because we are also very good at hiding what's really going on. And my description of a police officer is we are normal people, abnormal circumstances, behaving abnormally, and that becomes normal. Wow. That's a police officer. So let's talk about your sickness a little bit in that context. Uh, First question, and you know, I don't believe in assigning numbers to people, but we're going to, everybody else breaks the rules, so you and I are going to for (laughs) just a minute. You can't have an anagram conversation with someone and be like, I know we're not supposed to assign numbers to people. Uh-huh. And then they go, like, that's just a, that should be the T-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah, yeah. I know we're not supposed to. <laughs> that's right. And That's good. Right. Yeah, yeah. I am very curious as mm-hmm. to, because I would, I thought about this again this morning. I would make up that police officers are aggressive numbers. Mm-hmm. Three, sevens, and eights. Mm-hmm. 
My question, though, mm-hmm. after having 15 minutes with you is, are a lot sixes and ones? A lot of sixes and ones? Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. There are a lot of, um, there are more ones, actually, than sixes. But um, I find mostly ones, twos, threes, eights, and nines. Interesting. Yeah, the seven. Uh, I find them every now and then. Fours are few and far between. I find a lot of sixes. Um, I don't see fours and I don't see sevens a lot. Um, and but I, you know, I'm always happy when I see another six. Yeah. Um, One of the things I teach about sixes is that. So Lindsay's here with us too. Get your mic, girl. <laughs> Um, one of the things that I teach about sixes is that you doubt yourself. Is that true? Oh my God. Yes. Yes. How do you walk in to your world as the chief of police doubting yourself and then do all the scary stuff that you do? Where does all the doubt go? Well, it stays with me. Um, but I, I, um, one of the things I, I do a lot of is, uh, I teach leadership and there's a leadership theory called decision-making in groups. Mm-hmm. And there are three different decision-making styles. When I teach that piece of material, autocratic, consultative, and group. Right. And so I, I do a lot with succession. So that is my opportunity to put people around me to mm. help me with my doubt. Got it. So when I walk into a space as the chief, one of the first things I do is talk Enneagram with my direct reports. And I expose my vulnerability right away. There you go. In order for them to help me and with my paranoia. Mm-hmm. And with my doubting of myself and with my doubting of others and the trust issue. And I just tell them right up front, <clears throat> guys, uh, I'm not here to try to take over. I'm not trying. I'm just, I want to merge with you. Mm-hmm. And I can't be successful without you. Mm-hmm. Um, and But I need you to know some things about me, first and foremost. And I begin to share. And so what I do there is I create psychological safety yeah. right away. So that they can relax and then do the same. And so at that point, I have people around me that can measure my temperature. They can see when I am having some anxiety issues, Mm -hmm. and they just step in, take over until I can breathe. Mm -hmm. And then once I breathe, I can step in and take over again. And nobody knows that but me and those that are around me. Can you repeat those three, the three leadership styles? And then, yeah, Lindsay. They're autocratic consultative and group Um, in autocratic there's technically two styles of autocratic autocratic one autocratic two consultative one consultative two and then just group so there's technically five styles the reason why i asked it would seem to me as a six that that group style of leadership is a and Lindsay's nodding her head and so i'll I'll be quiet as the non-six here but that kind of seems, it, as you described it, of looking around to the group of, hey, here, first opening with the vulnerability mm-hmm. and then getting that group feedback seems like a 
yeah. a good leadership style for sixes with sixes. I just am sitting over here crying, um, listening to you describe how you yeah. lead. Because um, as a six who is stepping into some more leadership things, um, it's really beautiful to hear a picture of what that looks like. Thank you. So the consultative two is, and group are my favorites, because um, consultative two says this, and it's demonstrated this way. I walk into a space of my peers or my, I, I don't like using word subordinates, followers, or team members, mm-hmm. and I say, hey, guys, listen up. This is what we're dealing with. Give me your thoughts. Mm-hmm. They share with me, and then I make the decision but not after I've gotten a lot of information and feedback from them. Then the group is I become a member of the team. And the thing that I don't do in group settings where decision-making is happening with the group, rank goes out the window, and I become a team member. And the thing I don't do is hint. I just simply say, this is what we're working with. You can criticize even me, the leader. That way I also remove groupthink. From the equation as well. I'm going to ask about that next. Yeah. And so we, we're, now we're a team. Yeah. And they are able to criticize me. And, and when they do, I say, well, tell me more about that. Because I want to know. Um, because I believe that I can't be successful without them. And I need to be challenged. And when I'm in a safe space, it doesn't matter who challenges me. I need that crucial conversation in order to make the appropriate decision that affects so many people? You know, I I don't think I've been this uh, surprised by a conversation that unfortunately, you know, people just have assumptions about police chiefs, right? Like when you first got here, I was kind of trying to stand up straight, (laughs) make sure I was doing everything right. And I, I... those I've got all my paperwork over here in order just in <laughs> case I need to I need to pull out what I need to like none of those assumptions fit you none of them so did you start out with this package of wonder where you're able to uh, holistically lead no oh my god no um I went through hell to get to where I am well, that's what, and let me just uh, ask that question in a, ask the same question different way. in a different way. Sure. You talked about how, I don't, I'm not sure if you called it basic training or, but you said that what's removed is empathy, sympathy, compassion, and vulnerability. Mm-hmm. So you went through that mm-hmm. and here you are today. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious about the same, what was that journey to go from going through that? Cause that's not who you are that's sitting here. Um, it was a lot of pain. Um, but, you know, when I was going through the pain, I didn't even realize it was painful um, because I've gotten so immune to it. And it was a lot of dysfunction that was happening uh, with me um, because of the things that I uh, was experiencing. Um, but, you know, it started... Even before I became a police officer, I was a migrant worker. I started out as a migrant worker. So even as a kid, I saw things and experienced things that my eyes as a young seven, eight, nine, ten year old should not see or experience. Uh, but I didn't. It, but, you know, it was in me and it stayed there until I became a cop. And then trauma begats trauma. 
Yes, it does. And then it be, it, it started popping up and I started affecting my home and my wife and kids and all of those. Uh, and living in the house with my family and they didn't know me and I didn't know them. Mm-hmm. And I... hard yeah I mean yeah it was it was a it was just uh it was a necessary journey uh that I needed to travel in order to become um who I am becoming um I still got a lot of work to do part of me Joel is I am intentionally in a roundabout way trying to avoid some of your question simply because I want to um, stay composed. Uh, but your, your question was such a good question. And let me just say it was, um, it was a really painful journey of ebbs and flows. Yeah. And then, you know, just, just surrendering yeah. uh, to, to God yeah. and just allowing him to just take me as that piece of clay and, begin to mold me into what he wants me to be. Um, Every important lesson I learned in life came from pain. Every one of them. And yet, we have this setup where we try, it seems, my generation in particular. I'm about 10 years older than you are, but it seems like we tried to keep our children from experiencing any pain, even though it's what taught us everything that matters. That can't be the right path for us to be on, and yet it's so hard to watch people you love hurt and learn the things they have to learn the way they have to learn them. That's been one of the greatest lessons that I've learned from the Enneagram in helping me as a parent uh, and me as an Enneagram 7 parent where my kids are experiencing pain of whatever magnitude. You know, they're kids, and pretty sheltered and um, what's that term that, that I've got a lot of anyway, I'll think of it in a second. Um, it's a very, it's a, it's a very hot uh, term right now. Oh my gosh. I'm, I'm white. I'm middle-aged. I'm middle-class huh? privilege. My kids are privileged as hell. And when they are experiencing whatever the pain is, I'm always like, I want to, reframe it for them, explain to them how, Hey, guess what? You know, it it doesn't have to be this way. It's taken me. It's still, that's still my automatic response. And it takes being present and aware to like, okay, don't try to make them feel better for me. Mm -hmm. And just this, this really sucks. And I'm so sorry that you're feeling this way and it's okay to feel this way. And how can I help you? And that's just, yeah. you know. Been taught very well how to deal with our own pain, and it gets triggered when other people are hurting, and we don't know what to do with it. That is certainly me. It sure is me. And I, I'll tell you, I don't think we I, – I can't relate to pain that isn't wrapped in a story. I can see pain when I don't know the story, but I can't. I can't quite get to it unless I can find my way into the story. And we're getting to a point where our stories 
because of a lot of things that I didn't see coming, cancel culture and uh, all kinds of things, social media and a lot of things, we have to be very careful with our stories. We can't just go around saying, well, here it is. No, you can't. And that's my nature. You know, that's unfortunate because you should be able to say that. And uh, that's the kind of world I try to create within police departments because we are cannibals. Mm -hmm. We really are. We are. We eat each other, um, and people will be amazed at some of the things that we do to one another. And I, I sit at my desk, and my entire day practically are dealing with the dysfunctional aspects of my police officers, and when they don't know what they don't know, and I see them going and attacking each other, um, and the amount of of just stress and trauma and dysfunction and toxicity in those buildings. It is unbelievable. So I stay in this world. Uh, for that how do you reason. prepare yourself for that in the mornings? And how do you, where do you put it when you go home? Uh, I prepare by, I do a devotion every morning and I read and then I, I say a prayer and then I'm off. And I just walk in and um, see the messiness doesn't bother me when I feel safe and when there's trust. Yeah. I am. I'm okay with the messiness. It's when I don't feel safe. It's when the messiness scares the living daylights out of me. Um, and as far as home, my wife is a, is a therapist. Right. And uh, so we talk about it a lot. She can she can feel my energy. She can feel when I'm wandering and not get in my head and I just take off. And so she brings me back uh, because, you know, I'm probably dealing with an issue. And she can also see the transition. So we live in Austin. And so on weekends, I drive home and she her practice is there. So and she's retired. So occasionally she comes up here. Mm-hmm. But most times she's there and I'm here. And then, you know, I use that highway for, to decompress. There you go. And when I get home, I drop all of that. But then on Sunday afternoon, she sees exactly when I pick it up mm-hmm. again. And uh, she starts giving me the space so that I can make the transition. But I don't always do a good job, quite frank, of, of leaving it. And, you know, she's a one. And, you know, for years she was an enabler. And Man, I've got my Ph.D. in that. Yeah. And she, she has a strong, strong tooth. Doing, she, yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. So she, um, she sort of enabled yeah. a lot of my dysfunction until she said enough is enough. And she started living her life the way it was supposed to be lived. And I start seeing that, and she's leaving me behind. And I say, no, that's not going to happen. Yeah, I'm going to catch you. Yeah. Yeah. You're talking to it a little bit here. You were saying how when you've got the space that you feel safe and with people that you trust, that then it's easier to deal with the messiness. Uh, For those of us who love sixes, what tips and advice would you give? How can we create that safe space and that trust and uh, to support you all? Uh, for me, it's, and I don't know what Lindsay 
or with this, but for me, it's about information. Uh, give me as much as you possibly can around whatever you're thinking, whatever you're feeling. Um, and I think we are pretty good at holding space uh, for you. One of the, the uh, quote from um, Victor Frankl, his book, Man's Search for Meaning. Yeah. Uh, between the stimulus and the response, there's a space. Yeah. I love that quote because, you know, it says that space is where the power to choose happens. I also look at that as sixes. We are very good at creating a space for people to step into and be authentic. And the thing I need more than anything else is authenticity. Yeah. And when you're real with me, I have no problem in being vulnerable. We've got to be sure that we make uh, breaking the cycle. I just wrote it down. It's here. Yeah. This is the part of the show where I plug uh, my remarkable. (laughs) That's right. But stimulus response 5A. That's it. It is 5A in our world. Okay. And so we'll we'll hand you all the stuff okay. uh, when you leave if you'd like to hear it. And I love to. I do think that I, 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 I'm dying to ask this question. If you are, if your officers are in a dangerous situation on the street, are they prepared to know that there's that space between stimulus and response? Or does uh, intuition or innateness take over? And can you teach that? Let me answer the last part first. Yes, you can teach it. The second part of your question, I think their instincts take over. But it takes them a while to understand and recognize and appreciate the space. Um. Because remember I said that the four things that are removed from us is mm-hmm. empathy, sympathy, vulnerability, and compassion. And cops do not like showing that, and that space is designed for those four things. Yeah. And so they don't, unless they totally trust me, then they avoid that space until. So I have to um, sacrifice or show them that being vulnerable is okay. Yeah. If I could, I, w- I, I would, but I can't share with you some things around officers um, and some of the things that they experience that are very close to the other side of life Yep. and how um, when they come face-to-face with me, how I hold space for them and oftentimes are very shocked uh, by... Uh, me holding the space because what we typically do is we push them further away because the last thing uh, we want is a person on our team that's suffering from a mental health issue because that can possibly be an officer safety issue. Sure. Uh, But that person probably, you know, probably they need me more than anything they've ever needed. And I need to be able to demonstrate that it's okay to not be okay and still be a good police officer yeah. uh, because that says you're human. And finally, some of the things that you're experiencing has finally gotten to you. Mm-hmm. And now the work is about to begin for you to become the person that you are actually designed to be. And that's that the image bearer of nobility. Mm-hmm. And they cannot become that image bearer until they let go. 
of all of the demons that are inside of them so that they can release. And we, uh, there's just not enough of that going on. And that is what the Enneagram has been able to teach me first and foremost, myself, Mm -hmm. because I was probably about 40 years old when I discovered the Enneagram. And I also met Mike Alexander for the first time. Mm -hmm. I was 40 years old. And when I started this Enneagram journey, and it's been a phenomenal ride Mm -hmm. ever since. And uh, so I use it in my space. And so what I really love is to hear my officers talk about their their number Mm -hmm. and their blind spots and their sweet spots and their hot spots. Yep. And be okay with it. My deputy chief and I, I mean, we spent days just talking Enneagram. Yeah. And he didn't know it before I showed up. So It's interesting that it makes, uh, I, I never had thought about the Enneagram really so much until we began to talk about having you with us in relationship to police work. But it, if you really get it intuitively, I would think it would inform your response to your fellow officers and to the people that you are called to serve. That's right. Absolutely. And it it would make such a difference to walk into a situation with all aggressive numbers or all yeah. dependent numbers. Yes. Right? Like yes. I I'm uh, I'm fascinated by the gift you've had for offering that to the men and women who work with you. And I um, don't often hear sixes talk about safe space. And I wonder if I don't hear about it much because sixes often don't aren't in a position to create the space. Instead, they are part of a space that somebody else created. I think it feels so... Safe space feels so um, temporary that it's hard to label something a safe space because for me it feels like it's it's always shifting and I have to manage it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's true. That's true. Um, you know, when you're in the position to create it, it still shifts. Um, so for me, it's always about testing and checking the temperature to see and to make sure I can keep it as steady as I possibly can. Um, but it constantly shifts, but I, I crave safe space. I just crave it. I mean, everywhere I go, everything I do is about being in a safe space and creating a safe space. Cause I'm, I'm in this head so much that it sometimes drives me insane um, and I'll never forget when I first was introduced to the Enneagram and I grew up into the narrative uh, tradition and I'm sitting on a panel and there are other sixes there and they start talking and I'm saying, my God, I'm not crazy. These are my people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I felt like I was in heaven on earth. Yeah. And I'm sitting here and I'll never forget it. It was I wish I, I'm, I'm, I haven't seen this lady since, but she had this long gray ponytail and she sat right next to me 
And every time she spoke, it felt like I was speaking. I'm saying, this is incredible. You know, the Enneagram came to me by accident, actually. We had, I was doing a lot of work at the time for the Department of Justice around ethics and integrity issues amongst police officers as they interface with community, community policing stuff. And we had an onslaught of alcohol-related issues that happened in the Austin Police Department. The chief of police at the time called me. I'll never forget, I'm on Interstate 35, 5400 block of I-35 when I received that phone call. And he said, uh, we had just lost a high-ranking officer, a commander, and her husband. They were doing a poker run in the Hill Country for a worthy, uh, worthy cause fundraiser. And they both died that day. And there were quite a few intoxicated police officers on motorcycles out there with them. So he tried to intervene. And we had a police police association that blocked his intervention. Mm -hmm. And so I get a phone call. And he said, hey, uh, can you help me with this? And I said, chief, I really don't know what's going on. But what I will tell you is that what we are experiencing is the manifestation of a much deeper issue. And if you give me some time, I will do my best to figure it out. Uh, and at that point, I, I hung up with him and I called uh, then retired police uh, psychologist, Rick Bradstreet. I gave him a call. He met with me at a Starbucks and we sat there for five hours. Palmer and McNeil in Austin at a Starbucks for five hours. And we talked about the underbelly of policing and we created a curriculum called hidden hazards. Mm. Um, and we began to teach that thing inside the police department. And, and it was all about how uh, to focus on the micro to mitigate the macro. There you go. You know, he didn't use terminology like neuroplasticity, but that's really what we were doing is just rewiring and refiring. And, he introduced the Enneagram, but he didn't call it the Enneagram. Mm-hmm. He just started talking about this thing. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking, what is this? And I, I start seeing myself and I'm saying, this guy is talking to me, talking about me mm-hmm. to this group. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't. He was just talking about different numbers. Sure. Um, and then I asked him, I said, hey, what, what is what is this thing you're doing? And instead of telling me he invited me to his home where a group of Enneagram enthusiasts, practitioners showed up and they put a topic on the floor and we just, they start discussing it from, uh, and then he typed me, turned out to be a six. And then next thing you know, I'm on a panel Yeah, and that's, that's my journey. That's where it started. And, um, it is say it saved my life. It saved my marriage. I hear that an awful lot. I bet you do too. Mm-hmm. Saved my career. I bet you hear a lot. It, uh, one interesting thing to me is to hear point of reference. Like I keep listening for point of reference because I'm trying to learn more about that. It wouldn't occur to me in 10 million years to say I was at Lamar and, and whatever you said. Yeah. You know, I would have, my point of reference is, you know, it's the day we took Joel to college or it was the day before your birthday or 
everything for me is relational. It's such a an important understanding for you as a police chief to know where you were. Mm -hmm. And it's so important to me to know who I was with. Mm -hmm. And yet, the Enneagram informs what we both do. Mm -hmm. Though our point of reference and our background and our way that we got here is completely different. Do you have any pushback when you start to lay out opportunities for people to see themselves in relationship to the Enneagram? No, not all embrace, but I don't get any overt pushback. pushback. It may be some covert, Mm -hmm. but before I introduce the Enneagram, I introduce a whole lot of other things first. And then the Enneagram eventually come in. Once I get their attention, then I can introduce it. Um, So I talk about principles of leadership and, psychological safety, mental and emotional wellness, toxicity in the workplace, trust in the workplace. I talk about all of those things first. And then I talk about, now let me tell you why those things exist. That's when I introduce the Enneagram. Do you, in the department where you are chief and have been, is there a support system for officers that, they can go to and trust for all of these things that they would obviously need Mm -hmm. help with? That's a good question. And yes, uh, we didn't have that when I got to where I am now, Mm -hmm. but we, I have two officers that are working on that space. We call it peer support. Yeah. And so there's a peer support team that are forming as we speak for those very things that when an officer is experiencing dysfunction, struggling with something personal or professional. Mm -hmm. They have people that are trained that they can go to and talk to and hold space for them. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes the officers who are creating have also experienced a lot. Yeah, yeah. Already had their pain. That's right. That's right. I got a question about, um, you talked about always checking the temperature. Mm -hmm. I've become aware that I don't know what to do if I can't do that. Mm. If I can't read what's happening, I have to be responding to something. I can't just go in and, and I I have thought about that in relationship to three, but maybe it really is six, not three. Mm. So I wonder about that if it's, because it, it feels like I have a desperate need to read the room and to read what I think people are going to feel or how they're going to respond before I know what to do with myself. Is that, do you think that's yeah. six space? I think it's the line. Yeah. I think it's that line between the three and the, and the six. Because I do see six in that. That's the ambiguity piece. But I see also the three in there reading the audience well. I see both. Because I don't think people, t- people don't talk about six's ability. I think we can read things in a way that other numbers can't. And you right. hear that about threes, but I don't, I never yeah. hear people talk about sixes doing that. Oh yeah, I do. I yeah. do. And so I had to teach myself how to love the fact that I'm a six. And one of the things that that's where I talk about the micro and I say sixes are very good at picking up on the small insignificant nuances that are actually not insignificant nuances. Mm -hmm. They are very important messages that we pick up on. And what I do with it is I just hold it. I don't say anything about it. I don't do anything with it, but I hold it. Because I know at some point 
there will be another puzzle piece that will come. And it may happen that same day within that same hour, but it may happen a week or two later. The thing that I do is when I pick up on those things, I, I hold it. I am a, you know, by profession, I'm a trained observer, but I think because I'm a six, I'm a trained observer. Mm -hmm. And we just, we just watch. Mm -hmm. Why? Because it's about safety. Mm -hmm. And I need to know what I need to know when I go wherever I go. And so I start trying to read and understand as quickly as I possibly can. Why? For the safe. I just need to be safe. But, but I, I you know, you, you said for me two things. You talked about in a roundabout way the, the ambiguity around it. And, but you also talked about the three and being able to read the audience for that competitive advantage that the three needs uh, because they are so competitive and they need to be in the know. Uh, but I find the six in that same space, that same space. So interesting because people often ask us what the difference is between twos and sixes. Like, you know, they come confused. I'm not sure if I'm a two or a six. And I have a little list of things I'm going to say, but I've got an addition to it now. And that is when you said I pick up on nuances, I, I thought, me too. And then you said, but I just hold it. And I thought, oh, not me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I pick up on the nuance and I respond yeah, right away. No. And if I could learn to hold, that would be just so helpful. Yeah, it's just for me, it's just not safe. And I don't know what I don't know. So I just hold. And see, you know, I'm like, I make up what I don't know, I think. I'm so thinking repressed, I hate to even bring up those two words <laughs> together. But it seems to me I make up what I don't know, and then I think I know. And that would be way dangerous for you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But what I do love about the two is your ability just like you're doing right now. And, uh, you know, one thing, you know, and I've listened to you for quite some time, and you are true, the, the epitome of a parasympathetic nerve to where you automatically hold space for people. And for me, I need that. I need people to hold that space for me because I can end up in that vortex and just start spiraling out of control. But if I know I'm in the space of somebody I can just uh, be um, vulnerable with, then I'm good. Um, and just from the time I walked in, all, actually all three of you, to be quite frank, um, Lindsay greeted me at the door. And then, you know, I hear Joel so often. And, it, you know, so I envisioned, I knew, figured he was tall. And I, that was right. And so he came next. And then, here come you afterwards. And my nervous system just started to bounce. And I do feel that. I do feel that because just the work you do uh, for so many people, it is unbelievable. Thank uh, you very much. Yeah, I mean, I just enjoy, in my own entire family, just listen to your podcast. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody's going to love this one. I'm not wrapping up. I'm just <laughs> telling you, everybody's going to love this one. Um, okay, I have a new, a, a bit of a new direction, I think. I have always assumed, I don't like it when sentences start that way, that vulnerability cannot be taught. Is that your experience? Yeah, I don't think it's taught. 
um, well. Uh, I think it can be modeled. Yes, yes, yes. I don't think it'd be taught. I think it's in all of us. I think, as I stated earlier, we lose it. Um, and some of us never regain it. Some of us get it back. Uh, but I think we're born with it. We don't know we have it. Uh, and then things begin to occur and it, it pops up. Like I have a daughter, it's an eight. And my God, when I uh, didn't know that she was an eight, I really thought she was crazy uh, because <laughs> of the just the energy, energy. But when I see vulnerability come out of her, it is amazing. Uh, one of the things that we're working with a lot here at LTM right now is around the, the word and term and concept of transformation. Mm-hmm. What Suzanne and Joe teach is that transformation is when you allow something to fall away mm-hmm. and it's usually out of your control. Mm-hmm. So this is a leading question and you'll be like, no, that's not it at all, which is usually what I expect. But for that vulnerability is in itself a transformative experience. When you say you can't teach vulnerability, you can only model it. For someone to be to be vulnerable, something has to fall away to allow what you said. We we were born with vulnerability, and then in different ways, shapes, and forms, our enneagram personality layers and covers up that vulnerability, and we've got to let that fall away to be vulnerable again. Again, yep, that's absolutely right. Yeah. But I think when you're around people who are doing their work um, and modeling it, sometimes that's the first time it occurs to people that that's a choice. I don't know that people realize they're not being vulnerable. Um, They're just surviving. So they have to see that there's a way to be healed. And probably because I'm a six, but I just keep thinking the only thing that allows people to be vulnerable unless they're forced into it is safety. You have to, and I I would think that would be true for all numbers for different reasons, but I don't know. Maybe that's just a very six thing to say. I don't know. I don't know. I, you know, when uh, Amy Edmondson wrote her book, um, the fearless organization, it's about uh, psychological safety and she's the guru. And then uh, Timothy R. Clark, who wrote a book called the four stages of psychological safety. I, for me, I just gravitated towards that, that work. For me, it, it has to be safety in order for me to be vulnerable. Because if, if I don't feel safe, I can't be. Trust become a major issue at that point. So much so that I can't even talk to you. I'm naturally, believe it or not, I'm an extreme introvert. Extreme. I can literally... Go to work, go in my office and sit there all day and not say a word to anyone. And I'm in heaven. But I know I can't live that way as a chief. So I have to come out of that. We'd work well together. Yeah. Yeah. I'm the only extrovert in the room at the moment. (laughs) (laughs) It it is a, a very interesting juxtaposition for me that men and women who sacrifice what most of us refer to as safe space in order to create safe space for most of us, Mm -hmm. 
that you figured out that the thing to offer them was psychological safety. Mm-hmm. And I get that we all need psychological safety, mm-hmm. but I also, we have just more access to it. Mm-hmm. You know, Joel is teaching me how to not waste people's time by building relationships with people who are in elevators or who are servers at my table. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, I'm just like a a relationship waiting to happen. And we were recently uh, (laughs) in another city and my folks uh, hotel room was above mine. And I was going to the elevator and hit the button to go down. And it's coming down from the floors above, and it, op- it opens up, and there's Suzanne with other people, and I was just like, "Ah, damn it!" <laughs> <laughs> I swear, I think I headed for the stairs. I was like, "I'll just, I'll just walk down." <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, yeah, that's a two. Yeah. Uh. Um. So, I, I've thought of this story over and over, and if it's irrelevant, then we'll just remove it. I used to be a social worker, mm-hmm. and I worked with the elderly poor here in Dallas. Mm-hmm. And the projects here, if you haven't experienced that mm-hmm. housing, is really poorly built, and there are there is a lot of trauma mm-hmm. happening there, and there has been for a very long time. And one of the elderly women that I worked with lived in the projects, and she called the center and said she needed me to come because she thought she was really sick. And I got there and it was hot Mm -hmm. and they're built so that there's no flow through air. You know, it's just a terrible decision. Anyway, she was laying on the floor when I got there. I called the ambulance and the police immediately. And, um, she said, I don't want them to come because they're going to put me on a stretcher and they're going to wear gloves and I'm a human being. Gosh, this happened 30 years ago, more, 35. I still cry when I think about it. And I'm really scared right now and I don't want people to touch me with gloves. So the police and the paramedics arrive at about the same time. Paramedics have their gloves on. They're going to take her to the hospital. And she looks up at me, and I said to the paramedics, can you all take your gloves off just to lift her onto the stretcher? And they gave me the spiel about, no, it's, you know. Mm -hmm. And these two policemen stepped up and said, we'll put her on the stretcher. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the most important parts of her beginning of the ending of her life and so when you talk about the things that you were told not to feel I have a a poignant story that is a benchmark in my career where the officers did feel empathetic and sympathetic and Mm -hmm. and did what they did so is there a way that they learn from you and maybe from each other to know when to still be yes. empathetic and yes. sympathetic. Yes. And and I don't think all of us lose it completely. It's it's there. That we just don't know it's there. Yeah. And there are moments where uh and you know, maybe you and like as I stated, you're a true parasympathetic nerve. 
Maybe it was something you said and how you said it. It made them feel okay in stepping up to do what they did. Yeah. You know, we don't, well, sometimes we wear gloves and sometimes we don't. But typically we don't get involved in what EMS and right. paramedics are, are doing. But for them to do that, and you do, you see a lot of, of those kinds of acts of service within our world. Yeah. And what needs to occur is more of that. At some point, we started to drift away from that kind of thing. But that wasn't just a police thing. If you think about the architectural design of homes, yeah, our homes used to be built with large front porches. Yeah. And so families stayed on, they lived yeah. on the front porch, right? And then when the AC came about, mm-hmm. people went inside. Then you had the AC in cars, tenant windows. Yeah. And so when all of that stuff came to us, we tinted our windows, rolled our windows up. But before ACs, our windows were down. Yeah. We were cruising through neighborhoods, and we were getting to know members of the community, yeah. and they got to know us. But when AC came about, we rolled the windows up, tinted windows, and now... Uh, we disconnected from from the community. But you do see acts of service, like you're saying, every now and then you do see. Police officers, 99% of us are good law-abiding citizens who want to do the right things for the right reasons. Yep. Unfortunately, you're going to always, regardless of the profession, you're going to yep. have a bad seed somewhere sure. that uh, will, will just mess it up for all of us. And the unfortunate part of that, you have media, that will make it look like the entire profession is corrupt. And that's not, there are quite a few people like what you talked about. They are on my department, but that's just not a natural instinct. Mm -hmm. They just do not happen naturally. They have to go in there and get it and and just bring it out. But I don't think that they think about it. I don't think it's forced out. It just happens. Yeah, You do see, I mean, I, I love, I love this profession. I really yeah. do. It's obvious. Yeah. Were you called to it? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a little, I'm a little weird around the word call. Yeah. But like, did you know it was yours to do? I can use that language. No. No. How'd you get here? Um, very good question. Uh, I didn't like police officers as a kid because that 1% I saw a lot of. Yeah. I experienced a lot of it. And when I left home as a migrant and came to Austin and went to the small university, St. Edward's University there in Austin, I uh, had a roommate. And his um, degree uh, plan was criminal justice. Mine was business. But I was not a student. I did not like to read. I just wanted a party. And so... We would have done well in school together also. I'm yeah, telling you. Yeah. yeah. You two could have grown up together, literally. So I I um I changed my my I went to he 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 asked me when we were doing our our uh class schedule, uh I needed an elective, so I took a criminal justice class and that thing just took a hold of me and I changed my profession, mm-hmm. my my degree plan. And uh, then he went to work for Travis County Sheriff's Office. And I'm, I'm working my way up the, the ladder in McDonald's. Yeah. 
loved it. He said, hey, we have openings there. So I applied, got the job. It took a hold of me as well. And you know, 40 something years later. Here you are. Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't a calling. Originally, I did it because my roommate said that there were openings yeah. and I wanted to. And I said, since my degree is in criminal justice, why not? Yeah. Police officer was not what I wanted to do. I wanted to be probation, parole, uh, some form of uh, prevention or intervention. Yeah. Uh, but I got into the law enforcement side of it, and it was just, it just took me by storm. And yeah. If we weren't too old, we'd both be good profilers. Yeah, yeah. And we could do the FBI thing. Yes, yes. Right? <laughs> I, I, um, that's my secret yeah. hope, which is never happening. <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say that the term uh, psychological safety is new to me. Mm-hmm. Hearing you talk about it, it seems like it's regardless of your anagram number, mm-hmm. just really important. Yeah. It so is. Th- okay, so that's true. It is. How do you then in um, you know a community as small as a, a police force mm-hmm. – and then growing from there, how do you help individuals have psychological safety with such polarizing uh, events happening around us? Um, there is a um, there's a leadership theory called cohesion. So you around your question, how do I um, the the theory? Cohesion. There's a strategy contained therein called Stickem. Stickem is an acronym. Uh, the S stands for sacrifice. The T stands for teamwork. The I is interaction. The C is for competition. The the K is for keeping your members on your team focused. The U is for unique norms and symbols, and the M is for the overarching mission. So, what I do is I create opportunities for for Stickham to be present. So me being number one, I have to demonstrate my willingness to sacrifice for them, for the employee. And so that starts the journey towards uh, psychological safety. And then when you start looking at why conflict occurs, uh, two prevalent reasons is infrequency of interaction and being physically separated. So I create opportunity for, for, for teamwork and for interaction. And also I create opportunities where they compete friendly competition amongst each other, but I keep the core values and the guiding principles in the forefront of everything that we do. That's keeping them focused. But I also provide and give them the opportunity to create unique norms and symbols, Mm -hmm. whether it be medallions or hats or, or uniforms or t-shirts. And then the overarching mission is really about crime, fear, and disorder. That's what we are designed to do. So in the grand scheme of things, as a leader of an organization, I am very intentional in everything I do. Why? Because every touch, every time I touch one of my employees, what I'm supposed to be doing is adding value to them instead of taking it away. The, un- the other side of that coin is is an unfortunate side is that we probably in in many agencies across this country and there is um 
18,500 law enforcement agencies nationally, 900,000 of us individually. And you better believe that there are people who work in in those police departments are on medication because of a boss. And I don't want to be that boss. In order to not be, you have to be, in my mind, be very intentional. But you also have to, to create psychological safety around yourself to where when I am messing up, that my employees are not afraid to say, Chief, I don't think that's a good idea at all. Mm-hmm. You see, because I know, and I tell them this all the time, if you leave it up to me to make all the decisions independently or autocratically, I will turn this place upside down. I will mess it up. Because why? I'm doing it my way. And my way may not necessarily be the right way. I'm guessing that you're going to respond with a great deal of humility to this suggestion. But officers must be heartbroken if they lose you. Like you're an interim chief right now, and I bet they're trying to nail your feet to the floor. I kind of want to come work for you, actually. Um, I I enjoy. The hardest thing for me to do, Suzanne, is to, to leave. Yeah. But you have to have the courage to do so. Yeah. It's not fair to them. To be an interim. Uh, yeah. Because I'm just a holding pattern. Sure. And what they need and want more than anything else is stability. Yeah. And all I'm doing right now is trying to prepare the space for the incoming person. And so I have to look at it that way. Sure. I, I'm sure that you do. And I would just imagine that it's awfully hard to have you go. I would just think that'd be really hard. Okay, moving on beyond my emotional responses to what I'm thinking about. Lindsay, do you have, you were here this time, you're a six. Oh, we got two sixes in a room. Do you have a, a question or a... I just uh, really appreciate hearing from a six who has more life experience than I do. Um, most of the people I know who know their sixes haven't known for very long. Mm-hmm. And so it's such a gift to me to hear you talk about what your journey's been like and how you find the gifts of those things that most sixes have, but we have to learn how to use them in a way that's a gift instead of being frustrated by it and, and kind of leveraging some things to make it work. Yeah. Yeah. No, even the, the worst case scenario kind of things for me, I try my best to find ways to make that positive. Because that's how we work, right? We go worst case first. The beauty of that, though, is, man, are we prepared? We're really prepared. Um, The journey of dealing with the worst case is horrible. Because oftentimes the worst case never occurs. But, you you know, going there and preparing for it, oh, my God. There are times when I will wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning and I have to get up and just start pacing the floor because I'm thinking about worst case. Um, and it's so real that you just know it's going to happen. And then the next day I arrive and you're anticipating and it never occurs. And you relax. But at the same time, if it occurs, you're prepared. Well, it's not a switch that you can turn on and off. It's interesting for me to think about that because... I kind of talk about preparing for worst-case scenarios that usually don't happen as use of 
not the best thinking. But when you have to use thinking to prepare for that as part of your profession, then it's kind of like a it's a trap that you fall into where it saves you even though it costs you in other parts of life. I I can see how that would be really tricky. It is. It really, really is. To be quite transparent around that, my first police chief's job, I was dealing with some internal things that were really, really um, challenging. And this minister, who also happens to be a psychiatrist, was in town and whatever reason he called me that night and he could feel and he said I'm coming over mm-hmm. and he just came and sat with me and re- you know the Joe and his, yep. his three friends and that's what he did he just came and sat with me and because I trusted him oh my god um that helped me so much because I was dealing with just the worst case. And I always say, I don't know why on God's green earth that anybody will want to be a police chief. Mm-hmm. I have no, I still don't know. I don't know that, but I do know after this time with you, mm-hmm. why people would want to be Mike Alexander. Uh, uh, well. I kind of want to be a little more like you, my own self. <laughs> Oh, what's your what's your final question for, for Mike Alexander, Suzanne? Uh, my final question for all of my guests right now is, what are you curious about? Just life mm-hmm. um, and what it has to offer and what's around the being. That's always keep me going. Um, because for me, life is a lot of curves. And so I just keep traveling and I get around that curve and then I see another one and I get around that one. So it just, it's the curious curves. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I don't know quite what words to put together in sentences to say how much I've enjoyed this time learning from you and uh, listening to you. And I, it just makes me hopeful to spend time with you. I, I feel very hopeful. And that's kind of a hard feeling to come by these days. So thank you for that. I'm sure that all the people who get to hear you on the podcast will feel the same way. I'm really grateful for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I am uh, delighted to be here. It gives me a lot of joy and hope and inspiration to be in a space like this to talk amongst like-minded people who can see things the way you may not see it the way I see it but you understand it and when we talk about that holding space um, I just I mean this is like heaven on earth that's why I do Enneagram work and when I'm in the presence of Enneagram practitioners or enthusiasts man it's a nice space. Yeah, isn't it? it really yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah, it's good to speak the same language. Yeah. Thank you. Will you uh, please go with our blessing and take care of yourself? And on behalf of all the people who don't get a chance to thank you and your officers, we're really grateful for all that you do.